All right, well, uh, thanks uh, for letting me teach yet again today. We are, for, for anyone who's a bit new here, I see a few new faces. Uh, we are in the middle of a series where we are going through and, and learning about six kings of Israel. We've spent a lot of time in the Old Testament over the last, I don't know, six months now. Seems like it's been a long time. So we spent a, a long time in the Old Testament, and we're kind of wrapping up this calendar year with a study of kind of six kings leading into the, the time of Christ. We'll end uh, with Herod. Uh, we were so excited over here. We, 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 uh, Holy Spirit knocked over a drink, and it's just, yeah, just, just excited. I mean, I mean, that's great. Yeah. Hey, we'll, we'll take it. Yeah, we talked about baptism. Yeah, I had a lot of people during the baptism discussion ask me if we if we dunked or if we sprinkled or you know we've we've got sprinkling of coffee over here, so that's one way to do it. Uh, anyway, uh, we're going to try to end the series in this calendar year, going through some pretty important kings in the Old Testament, and some kings you may not have heard too much about, but want to kind of connect the end of the Old Testament up until the time of King Herod at the time of Christ, right before we get into Christmas. Uh, last week, well, we started the series on Solomon a few weeks back. Last week, we covered uh, Ahab. Jeff did a really good job talking about Ahab. And this week, we're going to cover a guy named Jehu, King Jehu, who is not in your note page. I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. Uh, but one thing I want to start off by saying is I've got a lot of comments from people in, in this class that, um, that, you know, they're just, they've never read some of these stories in the Old Testament, or they've never really uh, gone through it, or maybe they've read it once, but just kind of scanned past it and really had no idea about some of these stories in the Old Testament. And I think that's a great discovery, right? If, if that's how you feel for any reason... I would highly encourage you to uh, get on a, a reading plan. It's a great way to keep ourselves accountable. Uh, if, we are not, uh, if we're not careful, we'll spend 95% of our time in the New Testament, which is you know, less than a third of the overall Word of God, and we'll, we won't really spend any time in the Old Testament. And I, I'm hoping what these series that we've been going through has taught all of us is that there's no reason to be scared of it. There's a lot in there to learn. It's a great story of God's promises, a great story of God's redemption. Uh, and there's things in here we really need to know to be able to connect the entire puzzle together uh, of the overall mystery of God. So if you ever have any desire to get on a reading plan, uh, let me know. Actually, I'll say this. Let Buck Francis know back there. Buck is by far the best person I've ever known about, about sticking to reading plans. Uh, I get a notification every single time he starts and finishes a reading plan on, uh, on his version app. Uh, but there's some great chronological reading plans out there that I would really encourage everyone to start with that help you understand the Old Testament in its overall linear story. So uh, if you have any questions on that, let me know. Just want to remind you guys before I get into this lesson, you know, of kind of what happened after the time of Solomon. You know, we had the two kingdoms split. We had the northern kingdom of Israel. We had the southern kingdom of Judah where Jerusalem is. Uh, we saw Ahab last week was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Ahab was married to a woman named Jezebel. Uh, who was not a fantastic example for any of us to follow. Uh, but, but Jeff talked about a couple of different stories of Ahab that are really important. That, that famous story that we've all heard probably a number of times of Elijah up on Mount Carmel where, where uh, Elijah calls upon God and God shows his might and defeats all the prophets of Baal and they put to death the prophets of Baal who were up there on the mountain. Uh, he told that story, and then he told a second story that I am very glad he told. He told a story of the Garden of Naboth and how Ahab really wanted this garden. And Naboth, for the right reason, said, you can't have it. 
Uh, Ahab goes back to his bedroom and pouts and refuses to eat and and acts like a very strong king. Uh, Jezebel comes in there and says, "Why are you pouting, you you know little pansy?" For the better, I think I think uh, I think Jeff said sissy. Uh, so he pretty much, "Why are you pouting?" He says, "Naboth won't sell me the garden." And Jezebel concocts a scheme where she lies and gets a lot of other people to help her. And they kill Naboth, they kill some of his descendants, and, the, and Ahab takes the garden, and God is not too happy about that. Uh, that's an actually a very important part of the story uh, that we need to know. And as we get into this, this lesson on King Jehu of Israel, uh, there's a couple prophecies that occurred before his time that we need to know. And, and I say this because if you remember back to when we did that, that big Old Testament overview lesson, one thing we learned was God is a God who keeps his promises. He is definitely a God who keeps his promises. And not all of God's promises are rosy and flowery and, you know, kind of, you know, as my brother-in-law Jonathan would say, not all full of rainbows. You know, some of his promises are a bit dark. And God makes a couple promises as it relates to this story that we need to be aware of. If you look in your note page, I've got them itemized out there, but I want to go to the first one. And this one was with Elijah, the prophet Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 19. And in verse 15, this is the prophecy that, that occurs that we need to be aware of. It said, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. So just as a quick aside... God says he has the power and sovereignty to anoint kings of nations and states other than Israel, which I think is a kind of interesting aside. But he says, go anoint uh, Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shabbat, uh, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, the king of Syria, shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Now, this is well before the story we're going to talk about today where Jehu actually becomes king. Uh, Jehu, at this point in time, was probably a younger guy in the military. Uh, but this was a command of God that God gave Elijah. And Elijah goes throughout his life, and he does some of these things, which we'll get to. Uh, but then there's a second prophecy we also need to be aware of. And this is something that happens right after that whole ordeal with Naboth in the garden from Ahab. And if you go to 1 Kings chapter 21, 17 through 23, you see this. It says, Then the, Lord, or the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. Jeff taught about this last week. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. 
nice fun little prophecy uh, for, for us to kind of dwell on. Not, not something we necessarily teach in Sunday all the time in front of the kids, uh, but, but it's an interesting prophecy we need to be aware of. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. So I want you to remember that. After this story takes place, Ahab, as you recall, he humbles himself a bit, uh, and, and God actually grants him some mercy after he humbles himself. He doesn't go back on his promise, but he says, look, what's going to happen to you and your family is going to happen after your time at this point in time. Ahab, after this, joins with the king of Judah, a man named Jehoshaphat, to go and fight the Syrians. And although a prophet of the Lord is going to go to Ahab and tell him, don't go up and fight the Syrians, you're not going to win, Ahab goes up anyway, and he meets his demise. And after Ahab dies, we see these words uh, uh, echoed in 1 Kings chapter twenty-two thirty-eight. It says, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. This was the chariot that Ahab had been in that they had brought him back, in, back to from the battle. It says, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. So that was one piece of the prophecy being fulfilled after Ahab died. After this, Ahab dies, and his son, if you kind of look at your, if you look at your note page, I gave a, a much simplified version of the chrono- chronology, uh, or the genealogy, as it relates to just the characters we're talking about today. But if you look at Ahab, he is married to Jezebel, and he has a son, Ahaziah, so it's going to be on the kind of right side of that, that graphic, towards the right side. Uh, Ahaziah takes his place. And... This guy is just a chip off the old block. He pretty much doubles down on every sin that uh, Ahab had conducted. He becomes an even bigger Baal worshiper. Uh, He brings up more prophets of Baal. And Elijah gets to do some pretty cool things uh, where this guy gets to understand that he's about to die. He dies. And Joram, who, who we believe to be his brother, is the next king in Israel to take his place. We also, around this time, see a transition occur from Elijah to Elisha. And just as a quick aside, it took me a long time to get through the prep on this lesson because everyone's darn names sound exactly right on both sides of the kingdoms and the different genealogies. So I'm going to try very hard to make sure we keep it clear between Israel and Judah as I go throughout this. So Elijah, with a J, is transitioning to, be, to the prophet Elisha, you know, who was his understudy uh, for, for all that time. And we, we see Elisha start to be the prophet speaking into these situations. And we see the king of Israel and the king of Judah start to actually come together to do some things together. And that really hadn't happened since the kingdoms had split. And you see the king of Judah and and Israel work together to fight the Moabites. We all remember our friends, the Moabites, from a number of lessons about Balaam, uh, because the Moabites had rebelled. We also see a lot of back and forth fighting and warring with the Syrians. So remember, God had anointed Hazael, king of Syria. We see Syria and Israel kind of constantly at war during this time. And then we go even further here. I just want to really set the scene for what's going on in this story because we have some interesting family dynamics occur uh, in these dynasties. You know, the, the king of Israel, king of Judah are working together, and they even agree to intermarry a little bit. So if you look at this, at this point in the story, the king of Israel at this time is this guy named Joram. You can see it circled right there on your right. 
then in Judah, King Jehoshaphat dies, and his son Jehoram, not to be confused with Joram, Jehoram takes his place. Now Jehoram, who's the king of Judah, happens to be married to the daughter of Ahab, who had been the king of Israel we talked about last week. Uh, and, and this guy walks in the ways of, the king, of, of Ahab. He pretty much takes the kingdom of Judah and does all the bad stuff Ahab had been doing in Israel, in the northern kingdom. And his son, a man named Ahaziah, so if you look at that on your left, Ahaziah takes his place eventually when he's 22 years old. So I just want to make sure I, I join these things together. If you look, Ahaziah's mom is this woman named Athaliah. You know, A-T-H-A-L-I-H. So she is the daughter of Ahab. So I just want you to kind of see how all these kingdoms are kind of connected at the moment between Israel and Judah. And again, apologies in advance for how many of these names are similar. I've really tried hard to make sure I get this clear for you guys. So at the end of the day, the scene's set here a little bit. You've got a king in Israel named Joram. Uh, He's the current king of Israel. You've also got a king in, in Judah named Ahaziah, and these two are, are, seem to be fairly well acquainted. Uh, they've got some blood that they're sharing. Uh, they're, they're working together whenever they're fighting the Syrians, uh, they're kind of, and, and they're going down the same path. They're, they're kind of both, for the most part, leading their people astray in a very similar way. Now, Joram, the king of Israel, is injured in battle. Uh, he's, he's battling the Syrians, and he gets injured, and he returns to this area of Jezreel to heal, uh, to really just recover from his wounds. And Ahaziah, the king of Judah, hears about this, and he decides that he's going to go and visit Joram, the king of Israel, to just see how he's doing and, and try to provide comfort and, and get him back on his feet. So both kings, the kings of Israel and the king of Judah, we now find in the same spot. Like they, geographically, they are in the same spot. And now is when we have Jehu enter into the story. So before I start talking about Jehu, I want you to take a couple minutes at your tables. And for anyone who follows me on Facebook, you know where this is going to go. Uh, I, 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 when I was reading this story of Jehu, the first thing that came to mind, and it just went through my head all throughout the story of Jehu, was the movie The Godfather. Uh, this is the closest thing to the Godfather that you're going to find in the Bible. And it's a fascinating story we're getting ready to go through. So what I want you to do for a second, just for a few minutes at your tables, is I'm hoping you've all seen the Godfather. If you haven't, pretend like you have. Um, but I want you to debate quickly, what was the best Godfather? One, two, or three? Give that a few seconds and then we'll come back. Now, I I hope that there's no one in this room, just for a second, I really hope there's no one here who chose Godfather Part 3 as your favorite. Uh, If you did, leave the class now. yeah. Now, also, I'm, I'm I'm equally disappointed with anyone who's seen none of them. Uh, but but was 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 who had one? What table had one as the 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 consensus favorite? Were there any part twos? Anyone who consensus favorite part two? You had a part two. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, I just thought The Godfather was one of those. One of those deals where you don't normally find movies that are as good as the books, and and I've read, you know, I've, I've watched all of the Godfathers. I, I'm so sad that I watched Godfather Part Three because it almost ruined the whole uh, series for me. Uh, but also read the book. It's one of those things. It's just, it's a very, very intriguing for me. Jehu kind of follows, and it's not just because I like the Godfather a little too much, but he seems to follow the life of Michael Corleone a little bit. Uh, and, and I want to show you this. There's kind of 
three parts of Jehu's life that are very similar to me to the three parts of the Godfather story, kind of the rise of Michael Corleone and how he settles family business, how he really takes it way too far in a life of crime in part two, and then you just see the depravity and the desperate and the loneliness and the isolation and the failure that occurs in Godfather part three. And you kind of see Jehu's life uh, really model that arc. But Jehu is definitely somebody. We, we went back to that original prophecy. God has anointed Jehu uh, to really be an executor of judgment uh, in, in this situation. And so I want to read and kind of let you, let you see what goes on in this story. This story takes place in 2 Kings uh, chapters 9 and 10. And I've given a, in your note pages, a quote from Michael Corleone uh, for in each one of part one, two, and three. And so I want to label this section, part one, as, you know, today I've settled all family business, right? And that's what you're going to see happen here in part one of the story of Jehu. So Elisha tells, Elisha is now the major prophet in the area. He tells one of the sons of the prophets, one of the guys who's with him, to go and to find Jehu and anoint him king of Israel. Going back to that command that had been given to his, his kind of, uh, who he was working with, Elijah, all those years ago. He says, go and find Jehu, and I want you to anoint him king of Israel. Now, at this point in time, Jehu was the commander of the Israeli, uh, the Israeli army. He was, he was the guy overseeing all the army. So he was, he was a well-respected figure. And you remember, both kings are in one spot, and Jehu is actually with all the other commanders of the army at this point in time. So this prophet comes in, and, and he, he pulls Jehu aside, and he says, I have something from the Lord that I need to say. And so if you look uh, right there in verse, would have been verse 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. So Jehu is all by himself uh, when this happens. And he comes out of the room and apparently looks a bit shocked. And this prophet, he flees. He just goes. Uh, he looks a bit shocked, and the commanders are saying, hey, what was that? And Jehu at first tries to play it off, and I'm sure he was just a bit like, what in the world just happened? Um, and so he kind of tries to play it off like, oh, he, that guy was just you know, speaking crazy. And they go, no, 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 we know who that guy is, and we know who he speaks for. We know he's a prophet of the Lord. What did he say? And so Jehu goes, he said, I'm king of Israel. And all the commanders look at Jehu, and they immediately blow the trumpets, and they appoint him king of Israel right there, right? I mean, so that's a, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. So, so he's king of Israel, and then Jehu tells them all, he goes, if this is your decision, if you want me to be king, then make sure this word does not get out. Make sure no one goes and gets word to Jezreel, where the king of Israel and the king of Judah are right now. Don't let them know that this has happened. And the reason he says that is because he wants to mount a surprise attack, 
Right. So Jehu mounts his chariots and he heads for Jezreel. And the watchman, the watchman there, Jezreel, who's kind of you know watching over the king, sees this chariot coming down the road, and he sees all this dust blowing up. And so he alerts Joram, the king of Israel, and he says, "There's someone coming." And so they look, uh, they look out, and the king of Israel tells the horsemen to go out and ask, "Is it peace? Right? Is it peace?" And Jehu uh, meets the horseman, and, and the horseman says, uh, what do you have to do with peace? Ride behind me. So his horseman is rode out to meet, to meet Jehu, and Jehu goes, what do you have to do with peace? Ride behind me. And, and what that really means is he goes, you don't need to be concerned about what's getting ready to happen, but get behind me, right? So, so the, the, the other watchman who's there with Joram, the king of Israel, goes, well, that guy's just riding behind him, you know, and they're still coming, and they're not quite sure what's going on. I mean, they, they, they see, so he sends another horseman out, and that horseman has the same interaction with Jehu. He says, get behind me. And so Jehu, and they're, they're coming. And then I love these words. It says this. It says, they get behind Jehu and ride with him. And the watchman tells Joram, the man man driving the chariot is driving like Jehu, for he drives furiously. And I just love that imagery. So you've got, you've got like this third watchman now, who's, or this watchman who's talking to the king, and he's saying, this chariot that's coming, that must be Jehu, because I know how Jehu drives his horses, and that man's driving like Jehu. So just think about the reputation Jehu must have had that he drives furiously. I just thought that was an interesting image. Uh, and so Joram, the king of Israel, uh, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, are, are right there together, and they both head out in their chariots. And at this point in time, they don't know Jehu's coming for anything sinister. He's the commander of the army. They're thinking maybe there's a threat. Maybe the Syrians have invaded. You know, something's going on that he's trying to get to them quickly. So they both ride out to meet him. And and I'm going to read the passage. And what I want you to listen to is listen to where they meet him. So 2 Kings chapter 9, 21. Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu. And they met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So remember what happened. What happened at the property of Naboth? Just make sure we've got this clear. What happened last week when we discussed at the property of Naboth? Ahab stole it, and it was part of the prophecy of God that you stole it, you shed innocent blood on this property, and I'm going to make sure your blood is shed on this property. And we saw that already happen with Ahab, the, the, where the, the blood from the chariot was washed into the pools is right here on this property. And so now you've got Ahab's descendant, uh, uh, Joram, who's right there as well. So... Read the interchange now that occurs here in the garden. So in verse 22, it says, And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Not the answer he was expecting to hear, by the way. He's expecting to hear, hey, the Syrians have invaded. And he goes, no, there's no peace because of what your mom has been doing, right? So he says, then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, treachery, O Ahaziah. So, so Joram's figured out what's happening. Jehu's there for, for a bad reason. And Jehu drew his bow. And I just want you to think about this for a minute. Joram's in a chariot fleeing. Jehu draws his bow at full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, 
Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement. I just want to stop there for just a second. So there's something important there. Jehu is saying, I was there with Ahab the day, and so were you, Bidkar, the guy driving Jehu's chariot. They were there with Ahab the day Ahab took the land from Naboth, and the Lord made that pronouncement through Elijah. They were there, right, as, uh, as, as leaders of the army. So, and as the Lord made this pronouncement against him, as surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So, so now, now Joram's been taken care of, and that was all part of the prophecy. Then, then this is where he goes a bit more Michael Corleone on us, and he goes a bit further. It says, then, in verse 27, when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of beth And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur. Uh, and he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. Now, the killing of Ahaziah of Judah, the king of Judah, that was not in the commands that were given to Jehu. Go back and remember what the prophet, the, the, the kind of person who Elisha sent, had told him to do, what had been commanded of God. That was not in the commands. But Jehu is in the mood to settle all family business tonight, just like the end of Godfather Part 1. He settles that, and, I, and, and you can make an argument that he felt justified by killing this king because he's the son of Athatha, however you pronounce the queen's name, Athatha, my, my tongue's twisted, I'm, I'm looking at you over here, whatever you say. He felt justified killing her because he's the son of that queen who is the daughter of Ahab, right? So he does have bloodline uh, back to Ahab. But the story doesn't end here. More family business has to get settled. There was more things that had to happen. Jehu immediately turns his attention towards Jezebel, uh, who she's still alive at this point. So if you go on to verse 30, and and I'll eventually get to some application in this lesson, but this is just a fun story. So I'm just going to keep telling the story. So... Jehu came to Jezreel, and Jezebel hears of it, and someone has told her what has happened. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head, and she looked out the window. And just imagine, she probably knows how Jehu drives his horses as well. She sees his chariot coming. She knows who's coming. So she doesn't hide. She paints her eyes and adorns her head. And when Jehu enters the gate, she says, "'Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master?' And Jezebel's smart, right? I mean, she's evil, but she's also smart. Zimri, just, just that, that name he, she calls him, Zimri was a man who had, um, who had murdered a king and had started uh, the throne. And he, and he eventually, uh, he murders the king, and then seven days later, uh, this man named Omri kills him. Omri is the one who started the dynasty that led to Ahab and Jezebel. So she's saying, she's saying, hey, I remember the last person who decided that they're going to murder the king of Israel, and that guy lasted seven days. Good luck. So she doesn't fight. She knows her fate is sealed, but she's just sticking the knife in Jehu a little bit uh, right before uh, he does whatever he's about to do. So Jehu lifts up his face to the window and says, who is on my side? Who? He's talking to the servants in the house of Jezebel. And two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and he goes, throw her down. So they threw her down. They threw her out probably a two- or three-story window. Throw her down. 
and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in, and he ate and drank. He didn't eat or drink her. He went just into town and ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. So if you remember from the prophecy, the prophecy of God said she doesn't even deserve to be buried. Remember, this, this woman had killed hundreds of prophets, right? And, and the prophecy of God said she doesn't even deserve to be buried. Uh, Jehu must have forgotten that, and he goes, have her buried because she's a king's daughter. But he's out in town eating and drinking. But when his servants came back to bury her, they found no more of her than her skull and the feet and the palms of her hand. When they came back and told him, he said, Ah, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face on the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. So, if you guys can kind of see just from this part of the story, and and, and trust me, it gets worse. this point in the story, you kind of see why I felt like this had a Godfather theme to it. There's just some brutal murder uh, that occurs here. Part of it was ordained, and part of it is not, right? There were some things that God said, you are going to be my tool for execution, uh, for, for judgment of the sins of the family of Ahab, the sins that were horrific, right? But some of this was not. Jehu then turns his attention. I mean, this guy's getting business done quickly, right? This all happens just like this. Jehu turns his attention then to all the sons of Ahab. Ahab had 70 sons living throughout Samaria. Uh, All of them could have been potential challengers to the throne. I mean, Jehu was not in the bloodline. He's, if you go back to that original chart I gave you a couple weeks ago, you'll see he starts a new color, Jehu does, because he's not in the bloodline of Ahab. So all the sons of Ahab, you know, would have had a challenge to the throne. So Jehu decides to deal with that. He sends letters to all the rulers of the cities and to the elders of the cities and to the guardians, and he says this. He goes, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's son and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. I love this. This is very, I mean, just, this is one of these things. He goes, he goes I've got 70 would-be challengers. Send them at me, right? Is pretty much what he's saying. He goes, whoever wants to challenge me for the throne, let them step forward. I'm right here. And, and so the, the elders of the city and the guardians of these sons of Ahab, they respond back in the way that I would have probably responded back as well. They were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us to do. We'll not make anyone else king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. So Jehu writes to them a second letter saying, hey, if you're on my side, then if you're ready to obey me, take the heads of all these sons of Ahab uh, and, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons, slaughtered them, 70 persons, put, persons, put their head in baskets, and sent them to him at Jezreel, to the same place, pretty much of this garden of Naboth. Right? All of this occurs right in that place of Ahab's sin. You know, it's just it's very fascinating. 
All family business has been settled at this point in time. And this is the end of Godfather Part 1 uh, in this story of Jehu. Any questions on this, though, real quick? This is a lot. Anyway, now enter, enter Godfather Part 2. Let's keep going. Uh, where Michael, you know, if you think, remember Godfather Part 2, Michael's consolidated the family business. Uh, he's settled all the business affairs. Uh, he's consolidated power. And then he gets paranoid, and he goes after people he probably shouldn't go after. He does the things that probably start sowing the seeds of his demise. I mean, Godfather Part Two, you know, probably that, that critical moment in Godfather Part Two is when he kills Fredo, right? I mean, he kills his own brother. And, and so you see, some of, you see kind of a s- symbolic thing here where, where Jehu just does stuff he should not be doing. Um, so Jehu is, is heading to Samaria, and he runs into some relatives of the king of Judah. So he's just got done executing all kinds of people, and he runs into some relatives of the king of Judah. They had just heard that the king of Judah had, had was hurt, you know, or, or, or had been in Jezreel to, to seek uh, the king of Israel. They probably don't know any of this stuff is going on. Uh, he finds them along the way. There's 42 of them, and he tells his people to take them captive but keep them alive. Well, after he tells them they're coming alive, he then gathers them up and slaughters them all. Slaughters all of them. And, and I want to be really careful. Make sure I'm telling you this. Jehu is not someone we should be emulating in this story. So this is not a story of like this excellent character in the Bible named Jehu. You know, he does, he's just doing things he, shouldn't do, he should not do. He then departs and he picks up the random, this random guy named Jehonadab, uh, the son of Rechab. And he asks this guy, he says, is your heart true? Is your heart aligned with my heart? Uh, pretty much saying, are you, are you after the same things I'm after? And this guy affirms that he is after the same things, and they ride together to Samaria, and they, want, and they strike down anyone else who is affiliated with Ahab. I mean, they're just wiping everybody out. Uh, just real quick, this guy, Jehonadab, whenever I, I, I came across that when I was reading the Bible, I was like, why is this guy even mentioned in the Bible? And so to 30-second aside, I could have done three lessons on this guy alone. Uh, just as I started doing some research on him, just really, really cool. This guy is from this interesting group of people called the Kenites. And you probably know the Kenites because Moses married a Kenite wife. Uh, the Kenites believed, that, and the people that, that kind of the group that came out of the Kenites uh, believe that they should never live in cities. They pretty much are Bedouins, uh, and that they should never, ever have anything to drink, alcoholic drink. And so they are kind of like these hardcore followers, you know, kind of this sect off to the side. They were very, very strict fundamentalist almost uh, in the way they, they monitored their religion. And there's Bedouins today around the Dead Sea who say they can trace their lineage back to this guy. Um, so that's my 30-second aside. Let me get back to the story. So this guy, though, he goes with Ahab, and they concoct this plan to lure out all the followers of Baal uh, in the kingdom. And Ahab, sent, or not Ahab, sorry, Jehu sends letters to all the people and tells them, he goes, Ahab served Baal a little bit, but I'm going to serve him a lot. Right, so so I'm going to have this huge offering, this huge service commemorating Baal. Why don't you come with me, uh, and and we'll all get to worship Baal together. And now all the people in the kingdom, they've probably just now heard that Jehu did what he did, and he's now king. But they have no idea what God he serves. And so all these prophets of Baal and all these followers of Baal come at his invitation. They come to the temple of Baal, 
And Jehu and this other guy he picked up go through all the people in that temple, make sure there's no followers of God in that temple. And then Jehu stations 80 men outside the temple, and they just slaughter them all. Uh, Just kill all the prophets of Baal, all the people who were following them. And then the story ends this way. It says, And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. So, I mean, just, I mean, this, this story is just crazy. But I, but I want you to think about what all has happened. I mean, Jehu has followed the commands of God, and he's not followed the commands of God. He's done some things that are hard for us to digest. I mean, even the, even the execution of, of uh, Joram, the execution of the kids, that's all hard for us to understand. Uh, but even past that, he's, he's done things that just should not have happened, very much like Michael Corleone in Godfather Part Two. So we're entering Godfather Part 3 now, right? The thing that we wish had never happened. That's the best way for me to explain Godfather Part 3. Horrible, horrible movie. Just depressing. Um, just bad. You know, honestly, the worst part of it was Sofia Coppola. I just thought, I thought her character was just horrific uh, in that movie. But anyway, watch it sometime and then you'll know what I'm talking about. But there was this quote in that movie where Michael says this. He's talking to another Don who had passed away. And he goes, Why was I so feared and you were so loved? See, in Godfather, by the end of Michael's life, he has been completely isolated. Like I said, he's paranoid. His family's abandoned him. He has been weakened. His, I mean, his, his, his rule is nothing. If you go all the way to the end of Godfather Part 3, he dies in this little village on a chair, and he just falls over on the chair, and it's as if nobody cares. Right? I mean, he's just been, I mean, all the power, all the glory, all the money, everything is gone. Uh, he's isolated himself from everything. And that's very, very similar to how Jehu's life really evolves at this point in time. In verse 28 of chapter 10, it says, Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in your eyes, and you have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in, my, in your heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Jehu had taken care of one major idol of the people, Baal, but he had let everything else continue. Uh, And he had really used his kingdom, and he had used some prophecies of God. He'd actually twisted some prophecies of God throughout his reign uh, for his own political purposes. Um, he, he He had, you know, made sure he he used some of the blessings of God to to benefit himself. And it says, In those days, uh, as as punishment to Jehu, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael, the Syrian king, defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. From the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites, uh, which is by the valley of Arnon, uh, had been cut away. And God, God disciplines um, a, you know, Israel for Jehu's lack of devotion. Uh, he gets all kinds of territorial losses. Uh, the, the, the kingdom is in complete unrest. He doesn't have much control. He's not a strong ruler. There's economic abuses in his kingdom. Uh, just no, no order or control at all in his administration. And if you think about that, it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, imagine, imagine how the kingdom was set up uh, at the time Jehu took command. 
you had alliances with lots of different people. Uh, Israel and Judah were on speaking terms. They were intermarrying. Uh, the marriage of, of some of that helped with the Phoenician alliances. Uh, Syria was at bay. There was little skirmishes and battles, but there was no major attacks. Right? You, you saw all this occur, and then Jehu killed all the people who could have helped him influence the administration and all the different things. He he, uh, he, he kind of took away all his allies because he was paranoid and he didn't want any challengers at all to his rule. And as that happened, all of his assets that he had started to just kind of drift away. He didn't have anyone to help him rule the kingdom. And we see the kingdom suffer as a result. I was telling Josh earlier, Jehu is the only king of Israel that we have an image of. And I made myself so mad because I figured that out after I'd already printed the notes for today. Uh, but Jehu is the only king of Israel that we have an image of. And that image is on this massive rock that the Assyrian king would use to show who had paid tribute, who had bowed down before him. So you see this picture of Jehu actually bowing down to the Assyrian king, who we've talked about this before. The Assyrians are getting ready to come in and completely take over the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, But that's the only image of the king that we have, and it's of him bowing to the Assyrians. So you think about how bold and how furious and how uh, just incredible uh, Jehu seemed at the beginning of this story. By the end of his story, he's kind of like Michael Corleone sitting in that chair, falling over, right? He's weak, he's powerless. Uh, And you saw him, he abused his power and did things he just should not have done. And so I think it's a a fascinating story of Jehu. Um, It's one of those that you see see God playing in ways that we don't exactly talk about a whole lot, Uh, but but it's true. And so as I kept reading this story, this is kind of what I got out of it personally, uh, because it's not like I'm going to, I'm not going to sit up here and talk about how we should be better kings or rulers of administrations based on the lessons learned from Jehu. This is what I got out of the story. We, we've been talking a lot about how our God uh, is a God who, who keeps his promises, right? Uh, our God's a God who keeps his promises, and there's a few promises uh, that, I, that I know in the Bible. Or I know that, that we have been told uh, that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and none of us are capable of saving ourselves from that sin. And so for me, knowing that to be true, knowing that's a statement of God, whenever I read this story, I did not put myself in the shoes of Jehu very much. You know, whenever I read this story, I felt much more closely aligned to Ahab and his descendants who had judgment executed upon them uh, than I did the executor being Jehu. I, I felt much more closely aligned to them. And, and we probably all should. We, we, if we truly understand the gospel the way we need to understand it, we all are worthy of the judgment that comes upon Ahab's descendants. And that's a tough thing to hear, but it's the truth. And if we don't understand that truth, we really don't get to understand the whole benefit of the gospel, the whole great news of the gospel. The, the good news is, is that God has made us promises and he keeps those promises, right? The, the promises that we see in here, we see some pretty crazy promises God makes and he finds every which way he needs to find to make sure he keeps those promises. Uh, and God has promised us 
that in that that his grace is enough for us, right? That, that his death, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross was enough to pay for our sins. That grace is sufficient for us. And all that is required from us is to have faith in him. Uh, and we too can be redeemed. We can be spared the execution, the judgment that occurred that we saw here in all the descendants of Ahab who had rebelled against God. But what I, what I think probably most closely or hit me the hardest was the story of the watchman here in Jehu. And I kept thinking about that story of the watchman who saw the chariot coming from a long ways away. And he goes, I know who that is because he's driving furiously, right? That's Jehu. I can see who it is. And I just kept that imagery of, of, of the end times, the, the other promise that's been made to us is that, that one day Christ does come back. Right? It's a promise that's made to us in the Bible. Christ has already come once as the dove, as, as the man of peace. He comes back the second time as a conquering king. And I think just like that watchman who looked across and saw Jehu driving furiously, we're all going to look there and no one's going to be confused as to what is happening when Christ comes back. The Bible tells us all knees will bow. But what is the great news for those who have faith in Christ, just the incredible news is that just like that horseman who drove out to find Jehu, and he says, is it peace? When we go out and we meet Christ, he's going to say the same thing that, that that person who came to issue judgment, when Jehu came to issue judgment, said, he goes, you don't need to worry. Right? You don't need to worry. Get behind me and ride with me. Right? And I just think it's, a, it's an incredible story for us to know that in, in, in here, there is great news for those who put their faith in Christ. But for those who don't, it's a, the, the gospel is not good news. It's bad news for all of those who have not put their faith in Christ. So it's like Jeff said last week, he talked about us being thankful for the grace of God, being thankful for the mercy that God shows us. Because we see God show incredible grace and mercy, even with people as evil as Ahab, right? If he can show that grace to Ahab the way he did, he can show grace to any of us. Just like we have to be thankful for that grace, I think we equally need to make sure that if we truly believe what we're saying, that one day this will occur, that this promise will be fulfilled, how can we not be incredibly excited to go and share that to all those around? Right? God has shown us incredible mercy trying to get everyone to come to him, and, and he's using us to do that. So I just, I want you to, to think about that as you go back and I'd encourage you to read this story again and try not to be led astray by just how difficult it is to get through some of the tough, tough context that comes in this from the, from the, the bloodshed and the murder and the revenge and the consolidation of power and all of that. I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of that horseman who rides out to Jehu and gets in line, knows that he is safe with the most powerful person in the world and says, come with me. Make sense? All right, let me uh, pray for us and we'll, we'll go on. Father, thank you again uh, for this class. Thank you for these men. Uh, we thank you for your word. We, we, we know that this is a difficult story today. Uh, it's difficult for us to, to understand. It's difficult for us to kind of talk through and wrestle through. Uh, but we trust in you. And we know that your ways are better than our ways and your thoughts are better than our thoughts. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you that, that you keep your promises. We thank you that for anyone, anyone who has put their faith in you, that we are always secure. That that day of judgment will come, and it's a day that has to come for the rest of this world to make sense. It's a day that must come. But we trust in you. 
We trust in you that we are safe in you. And we ask you to give us incredible faith, a boldness of our faith, that we would be bold enough to go and share that great news with everyone else. Because in this world, there are all kinds of descendants of Ahab, and we are not meant to look down on them. We are not meant to be unkind. We're meant to go and be your voice to them, to speak boldly and to speak truth in a world that so desperately needs it. We thank you for those opportunities, and we ask you to give us strength. In Jesus' name, amen.